Uh, just a word about the conference coming up. Uh, Josh read off the titles to you of the sessions. Um, just so much good material to be covered in that weekend. The conference will start Friday evening and end around lunchtime on Saturday. So again, the theme being hope amidst the darkness, looking at depression biblically, helping, to, helping us to understand it better so that we ourselves can be helped and also help one another. This is something that affects everybody because we're part of a body and believers struggle. Charles Spurgeon went through depression. John Calvin went through depression. This is a struggle. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote on spiritual depression, and there's lots to be understood about this topic. So, I'd invite everyone to come to this. Uh, We worked hard to make this work, and also, again, as I mentioned before, Jonathan Holmes uh, co-authored a book on pornography with a counseling pastor from Washington, D.C. named Deepak Raju. They co-authored a couple of books, and so they've um, uh, really kind of tackled the issue of pornography. And so, Jonathan is going to do another session about sexual sin in the home and how to come back from that. Uh, That would be something certainly that's appropriate for single people as well. So, again, a lot kind of jam-packed into uh, less than 24 hours, but I invite you to come to that. It is a couple weeks away, again, Friday and Saturday, and then uh, Jonathan will be uh, planning to preach to us Sunday morning, that next Sunday morning uh, from the book of Job. So, I'd encourage you to be there for that as well. If I could ask you to register for that this week, it helps us to know ahead of time kind of who's coming, uh, how many people, I should say, are coming. So, please, if you're able to register for that, it's just $10 just to kind of basically cover some of our costs. We know that there will be some people from the valley, some churches from the valley coming up to be with us, uh, so that'll be encouraging, and then also some churches in our area as well uh, coming to be with us. So, uh, please, if you can, Canyon Bible Church of Prescott, register for that this week so we know uh, kind of general idea of who's coming. All right, 1 Corinthians 11, verses 2 through 16. Uh, Paul is kind of turning a corner here. He's been talking about, uh, he's been answering their question about meat sacrificed to idols, and that has really allowed him to uh, not just answer that one specific question, but then to kind of pastorally go into some other areas related to that. And you could see, and I hope you saw this in the last number of weeks in chapters 8 through 10, you could see this, this call to the church to think selflessly Uh, This church uh, could be tempted to be like the culture around them, like we can be, uh, a culture of individualism and really selfishness and not considering one another. That's a theme that you've seen, haven't you, all throughout 1 Corinthians, calling on the church to be united, to think of one another, to love one another, and that theme will be continued on. Well, today Paul kind of turns a corner and starts talking about corporate worship. He'll do so from this passage, 11.2 through the end of chapter 14. And so, we'll look at speaking in tongues, we'll look at prophecy, we'll look at unity, we'll look at love, we'll look at all of those things, orderly worship. And he really starts that today by talking about an issue that some, not all, some in the Corinthian church apparently struggled with, and that's the maintaining of uh, biblical gender roles for men and women in the context of the local church, and specifically, the local church's gathering. So, 1 Corinthians 11, 2 through 16, let's read the text together. Follow along while I read. Now, I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand 
that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it's disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as a woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it's a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it's her glory? For her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Now, if you're a visitor here, you might be thinking, why in the world did he choose this text <laughs> on my day of visitation? <laughs> Our pattern, and people at Canyon Prescott kind of get tired of me saying this, perhaps, <laughs> maybe not. Our pattern is to go verse by verse through books of the Bible, because in that way you understand the context for which passages like this come. You understand what they mean. And so we want to understand really the whole counsel of God. Every single word here is a gift that heaven didn't owe us, but heaven was gracious to give us. And every single passage in this book is for the good of God's people. And so we sometimes come to difficult, come to difficult passages to understand. Sometimes we come to difficult passages to understand and difficult passages to swallow. Sometimes they're easy to understand, just difficult to swallow. Well, this one's kind of both. What exactly does he mean? What's he saying here? And sometimes this language of biblical gender roles can kind of grate at us for reasons that are not aimed at God, but really aimed at the abuses of gender roles that we've maybe experienced. So this is a challenging passage to come to. It's challenging because, again, for some other reasons, challenging because in order to understand the Scriptures, in order to understand them, understand them rightly, you need to understand a little bit about the culture that they were written in. We need to understand a little bit of the culture of the first century. That's why we so often go back to the culture of the time. What, would the, what, what was happening here in Corinth in the first century? What would the original readers have understood about this? How did they understand this word or this phrase? And so it's a little difficult for us to understand the Bible without understanding what was happening in the culture. So we have to know what was going on in Corinth. Uh, I read a book this summer called After Paul Left Corinth. It's written by Bruce Winner. It's a phenomenal book about the culture of Corinth at the time that Paul had left the church, and then now he's writing back to them because of some of those cultural things going on in Corinth. Really eye-opening, really helpful. But, but it, to understand this passage, we need to kind of have some of that background. So I'll give you a little bit about, of that. There's also another cultural reason that a passage like this is difficult, and it's not the first century culture, it's the 21st century culture. 
This is timeless truth coming to a day and age where we don't always love timeless truth. See, see the world flip-flops on what they think is right. This is right over here. And 20 years later, no, this is right over here. Well, the Bible declares itself to be truth, coming from the God who is truth. Jesus is the truth. God is truth. And God has given us eternal truth, truths to grasp, to embrace. So the fact that it's hard to digest is because sometimes the culture looks at that truth from different angles and says, I don't like it. But we need to understand it. Because as I said before, all of God's ways are for human flourishing. They are for good. Man can take God's truth and wrongly abuse it. And therefore, we look at God's truth and we have a big question mark in our head. I don't know if I like that truth, but it's not the truth that we're questioning. It's the abuses of the truth in the name of the truth that we don't like. And that's good to not like those. I recognize that this passage could bring up some difficulty for some who have been the victims of people who have abused the truths about biblical gender roles. Men have abused children and women because they say they are the king, they are the one in charge, and therefore they use their rule and authority to abuse those under their care. That is not the truth of the Bible. That is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that people should thrive under the authority of a leader. They should be blessed. I'll show you that a little bit later. So for those of you that maybe have some of that in your background, you have been abused by whether it's spiritual authority in a church or authority in a home, I would ask for your forgiveness on behalf of that person. I cannot do that for them, but it, but it pains those of us who know those things, that you've gone through what you've gone through, and this passage is not, hey, just, just buck up and get in line. We understand there are difficulties that come. But I do want to point you to the truth of God's Word and say that as God has given His Word, He's given it in a way that you would flourish under His truth. So I would ask you not to throw out God's truth for a misrepresentation of the truth that you were victimized by. And again, our hearts do go out to you and empathize with you. But God has gloriously ordered society in a way that people can thrive because of good leadership. And that's what he calls the church to, to an embracing of biblical gender roles in the home and also in the church. This passage I've entitled Three Cheers for Biblical Gender Roles. The reason I gave that title was because we don't want to make an apology for what our culture is uncomfortable with in the Bible. We want to show them the beauty of it. It's a good thing that there is order. You know that. When you go to the grocery store, it's not every person for themselves. Whoever gets to the checkout counter first, there's a line. We praise God for the line. <laughs> Have you ever seen videos of Black Friday shopping? <laughs> Black eyes and <laughs> pulled hair. Order is good. Order is a gift from God. So this morning, three cheers for biblical gender roles. Our outline will be three reasons for gender roles in the corporate church gathering. Three reasons for gender roles in the corporate church gathering. And Paul guides us through 
three reasons for gender roles. The first is that gender roles in corporate worship reflect divine order. I'll give them to you ahead of time just so you can have them in your head. Secondly, gender roles in corporate worship honor our heads or authorities. Third, gender roles in corporate worship resonate with nature. Now, before I get into point number one, gender roles in the corporate worship reflect divine order, I want to kind of give you some context as to what was going on so that you can better understand uh, the passage. Verse 2 says this, now I commend you that there's kind of a turn here. Paul was answering their questions starting in chapter 8, and now he kind of uses language to kind of turn the discussion. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. Now remember, the Corinthian church did not have at home, nor in the place where they gathered as a church, scrolls of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They didn't have that. The teachings of Jesus, what happened to Jesus on the cross, His resurrection, the things that He taught in the Sermon on the Mount, the things that He did when He healed people, those things were all passed down orally. And so there were traditions that they held on to, traditions about Jesus that they held on to. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John would write later. So the church at Corinth is called to hold on to the traditions that they heard from the apostles. Now remember, the apostles were given the right words, the exact words to speak from God Himself so that that tradition that the Corinthian church was holding on to, although it was oral and not written down, was 100% accurate because God was the one seeing that His truth was maintained from generation to generation. And so the Corinthians were holding on to the the traditions that they'd heard from the apostles, which were taught these things from Christ Himself. So Paul's commending them, evidently, for holding on to the traditions of male and female roles in the corporate gathering. He's commending them for this. But look down at the end of our text. Look down at verse 16. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, and we know that it's based on what Paul's been writing just above, if anyone's inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. So the church at Corinth was commended for holding on to biblical gender roles in the corporate gathering, but some in that church were being contentious about those things. And evidently, some men were praying or prophesied with their heads uncovered, we'll show why that was a problem, and some women were prophesying, I'm sorry, the men were prophesying with their heads covered, and the women were praying and prophesying with their heads uncovered. So there was some contention toward biblical gender roles in Corinth, but evidently most of the church was adhering to what they'd been taught by the apostles. Now in Corinth, men were used to acting independently. Women seemed to exist for the good of men. Men would be married, they'd have their wives, but men also thought of themselves as free to go and do what they would do with the temple prostitutes as well. And not just the temple prostitutes, they would go and do what they wanted with other women who weren't their wives and who weren't temple prostitutes. This was kind of the culture of Corinth. Men could do this even though they were married. Now, there was kind of a feminist rally in the first century in Corinth at the time Paul was writing, where in response to that, women would take off their head covering, which which pointed to honoring their husbands, would take that off in the public places, which signaled their availability to other men. Okay, fine, my husband's doing this, then guess what I'm going to do? 
And guess what I'm going to be available to do? And so it wasn't always that it was a sexual act of taking off their veil, but sometimes it was. But it was often a way to say, I'm my own person separate from my husband. And some people were bringing that into the corporate gathering of the church. Doesn't excuse at all what the men were doing wrongly, but it was a wrong response to it. There's evidence that some people thought about the teaching of Christ when he was so generous and welcoming of women in his ministry, which he was, wasn't he? I mean, the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection, the fact that Jesus' tomb was empty, were women. You wouldn't do that in the first century, but Jesus did. Why? Because those women mattered. You could take them at their word. Jesus was always welcoming women. One of his, his first evangelistic encounters is to a Samaritan woman. That said something about God and his view of women. So the Corinthian Christians, like all Christians, see that and they say, in Christ, like Paul would write to the Galatian church, there's neither male nor female, slave nor free. It's not that Christians are only of a certain class. Christianity, life with Christ is for everyone. But some in the church thought, well, then therefore now we can blur all the gender distinctions. And that's not what Paul's teaching. That's not what Jesus was teaching. Jesus, after all, called 12 men to be his leaders of this new way, Christianity. 12 apostles, all men. So Jesus is generous to women. God is generous to women. Women are equal with men. But there are different roles and responsibilities that he gives men and women. That's what Paul teaches. So because of truths like Galatians 3.28, some may have thought that being equal with one another, which they were and are, meant there was no longer a need for gender distinctions, which is not true. That's a wrong conclusion. Men and women are equal in Christ, but there is still an order that God gives. So now, three reasons for gender roles in the corporate church gathering, and at the end, I'll give us some implications for us today. First, gender roles in corporate worship reflect divine order. Paul's going to highlight three parallel relationships right from the beginning, verse 3. He's going to talk about Christ in relation to every man. He's going to talk about a husband in relation to his wife. And he's going to talk about God the Father in relation to Jesus Christ. Verse 3, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Now, the word head here is, is synonymous with authority. That's how it was used in first century Corinth the first century Greco-Roman world, when you think of head, it's one of two things. It's the thing on top of your body, that's one, or two, it's a term for authority and leadership. Remember Colossians, Jesus is called the head of the church, the leader of the church, the authority that the church comes underneath. So head in this time speaks to authority or leadership. So he's saying the head of every man is Christ. So every male has a head who's Christ. He answers directly to Jesus Christ. Now, that isn't saying that women don't answer to Christ, but he's making a point, and that's why we read Genesis 2 earlier. Notice, before God created the woman, 
He gave man a mandate to rule and reign the earth before there was even a woman on the scene. So this speaks to the fact that the head of every man is Christ. Men, you will answer to Jesus Christ one day. Women will too. But he's making a point here about the relationship between a man and Christ. Christ is going to look at a man and hold him responsible for certain matters. And the head of a wife is her husband. He's the one who is to be leading her well, rightly, as God himself would be leading her directly. A man is to be leading his wife that way. So the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Christ, in his earthly mission, submitted to the will of the Father. In that sense, he was, he was obeying the Father, the Son obeying the Father. So the head of Christ is God. Everybody has authority over them. Men do, women do. A lot of times we have the same authority. We're to be submissive to government, Romans 13. We're to be submissive to employers, Colossians 3. We're to be submissive to pastors, Hebrews 13. Women are to be submissive, not not all women to all men, but wives to their husbands, children to their mothers and fathers. We understand authority. We're all under it in some way, and most everyone has it in some way. This is the way God orders society. It's the way God's ordered the home. It's the way God's ordered the church. So at a basic level, Christ is the head over every man. A husband is the head over his wife, not all wives. Husband is the head of his wife, and Christ himself was submissive to the Father who's said to be his head. Now again, I've been saying this before, but I want to prove it to you. When God gives authority, He gives it for the flourishing of those under the authority. You might have been shown something different, and I regret that, but God's ways are that the people under authority would flourish, children would flourish under the leadership of a godly mother and father. Employees would flourish under the leadership of an employer who was leading in the way God would lead. That's what's meant to be. <clears throat> Second Samuel 23. Remember the story of David? We, we did First Samuel, I don't, was that last year now? Uh, we went through First Samuel last year where the people want a king and they choose Saul. And what's the prophecy that Samuel the prophet gives to the people? You think you want this guy, but he's going to mistreat you. That was the message. We want human leaders and oh my goodness, they mistreat us. But God puts his leader in place after Saul, puts David in charge. And here's what David says at the very end of his reign. When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. In a book about leadership, man's leadership or God's leadership, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, We see bad leadership from Saul, and we see David, the one sent by God, saying, under good leadership, people should thrive, should blossom. We know that the coming son of David, the king who reigned as in the line of David, Jesus Christ himself, led in a way where his disciples flourished and thrived spiritually before God the Father. 
This is what the Bible gives authority for, for flourishing, for good, for blessing, for thriving, for blossoming. Pick your word. This is what authority is meant for. Listen to Paul's exhortation to husbands in Ephesians 5. You, you know these verses, but hear them again and ask yourself, if husbands obeyed this passage, would wives flourish? I'll give you the answer ahead of time, yes. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Love, nourishing, cherishing, that's what authority should look like. So, God shows us why gender roles are good. Firstly, because it reflects a divine order. It reflects a divine order. He gave that to us in verse 3. Secondly, <clears throat> gender roles in corporate worship honor our heads. They honor, and by, he- by heads I mean not the thing on top of your body. I mean the one who's in authority over you. Gender roles in corporate worship honor those in authority over us. Verse 4, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. Now, why did people in Corinth do this? Why would people, why would men in the Corinthian church be tempted to do this? Well, in the pagan temples and the idols' temples, men would take their togas and put them over their head when they prayed to idols, foreign gods, whatever you want to call them. They would do that as an act of submission to them. And Paul's saying, no, 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 we don't have the same practice. Men are to be leading. Men are not to be bowing down to idols, certainly, but men are to lead. They're the ones who are supposed to rule rightly so that those underneath them flourish. They're supposed to rule rightly in the church. So it's a disgrace that a man would pray or speak forth the Word of God, the the words that, that God wants a congregation to hear. It's a disgrace that they would do that with their heads covered. Verse 5, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it's the same as if her head were shaven. Now, I'm going to take that in three parts, that verse, okay, and explain it in three parts. The every wife who prays or prophesies, what's that talking about? Well, In the first century, you had smaller churches often meeting in homes, and there was more of an informal nature to it than than churches have been doing since then as they've maybe gotten bigger. But a lot of times, a church gathering was more informal. If you want to parallel to this, think of our member meetings on Sunday nights, a little bit more informal. In the member meeting, we encourage women to pray, men to pray, men to give testimony as to what God is doing, women to give testimony as to what God is doing. That's more of what it looked like. And so, Paul's not saying that it's wrong for every wife to pray or prophesy. He's saying it's wrong to do so in an unsubmissive, independent, apart-from-my-husband sort of way in the local gathering as a way of not honoring him or dishonoring him, really. 
every wife who prays or prophesies. Now, again, nothing wrong with a wife praying or prophesying with the church. 1 Timothy 2, Paul writes to Timothy and say, I don't permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but that's not praying publicly or reading Scripture publicly in a church. Those are different things. Churches for centuries, for millennia, have had women speaking the Word of God, praying the Word of God, while not teaching, exercising authority, being a pastor or an elder, as Paul said in 1 Timothy 2. I don't know if you've had the chance to travel to other churches that uphold biblical roles in the church. It's it's a good thing to do. There are so many churches throughout history, and even today, that are complementarian like we are, uphold the fact that men are to lead the home and men are to lead in the church. Those complementarian churches that uphold biblical gender roles will often have women read Scripture in the service. Nothing prohibited, nothing prohibiting that in the Scriptures. Nothing wrong with that. They're not preaching, they're not teaching, they're not exercising authority over anybody. John Piper literally wrote a book on upholding biblical gender roles in the church. He literally wrote a book on it. And if you go listen to a John Piper sermon, you'll often hear a woman reading the Scripture before he comes and preaches. So, you can go to Capitol Hill Baptist, you can go to uh, Eden Baptist in Cambridge, like we were at this summer. You can go to a number of complementarian churches that uphold male leadership in churches and hear women read the Scripture in the service. Paul's not rebuking that. There's an attitude of independence, lacking submission, not honoring their husband that was going on in some in this church. Now, again, you might say, well, why don't we have women read the Scriptures? We don't have anyone else read the Scripture that I'm going to preach because I want to read it so that you kind of get the sense of what it's saying by the inflection of my voice beforehand. That's just what we choose, all right? It's not because women aren't allowed or another person's not allowed, a man's not allowed. It's not for that reason. Every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered, that's the issue, dishonors her head. Now again, there was a symbol. That meant something. Having your head covered meant something. We don't really understand that in our culture. We don't have a a, a parallel to that where you know when a woman walks into church, she, she honors her husband. There's no symbol of that. You might think wedding ring, but that, that's not a good example because when we see wedding rings, we think commitment. Men wear them, women wear them. We think commitment. The, the head covering wasn't a message of commitment. It was a message of I'm honoring my authority. I'm honoring my husband. That's what that spoke to. And so when a woman would independently get up and start speaking in church with her head uncovered, it was dishonoring her husband. Again, we don't have as much of a parallel here in the 21st century, but that's what was definitely a problem in first century Corinth. So, as these people are learning to be Christians in the pagan culture they've come out of, Paul's writing to show them what's appropriate, what's not. And then he says this at the end, if every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it's the same as if her head were shaven. If your head's uncovered, it's sending a message that you're trying to send. 
Again, some people think that it was the woman trying to show the other men that she was available to them, even in the church. There might have been some of that, but it was definitely a sign that I'm independent of him. That definitely was what they were doing. And Paul says, it's the same as if her head were shaven. Now, what's that talking about? For a woman to have her head shaven was shameful. People who, women who were caught in adultery would have their head shaven as a way of bringing shame on them. Remember, so much of the first century culture was a shame honor culture. If you committed adultery and were found to have done that, men didn't really matter. That's horrible. But women, it's a problem if you do it. And so they would shave their heads. So Paul's saying, you take off your veil and you want to be independent and available, it's the same as if you had your head shaven, have your head shaven. That's what he's saying there. Verse 6, for if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it's disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. So when he says she should just shave it all off, that, that's really, he's making a, an absurd argument for a point. It's kind of like in Galatians, when, when people are telling you that you need to be circumcised if you really want to follow Jesus, he says, I'd wish they'd just cut it all off. He's kind of making a point. That's absurd. It's absurd here too. If you're going to take off your veil, then just shave your head. He doesn't mean, hey, ladies, I think you should go shave your head. He's not saying that. He's making an absurd argument for a point. It's a problem that you're acting independently, not honoring your husband. Verse 7, for a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Now, what's all of this talk? What's this about? Since man is the image and glory of God, aren't women to glorify God? Yes, that's not what he's saying. He's going, he's bringing you back to the garden, isn't he? Matthew 2.15, I'm sorry, Genesis 2.15, I read it earlier. Listen to this again. The creation mandate for us to rule over creation, manage the animals, manage the, the, the plant life, give names to things, us ruling over the creation, that mandate was originally given when there was no woman in sight yet. It was given to the man to do that. And then he said, I'm going to bring a helper for him. And it was a helper that Adam was very excited about, Eve. God brings Adam a helper to help manage the creation. And so when the serpent goes to Eve, it's a problem because Eve is supposed to be managing the serpent. And Adam is supposed to be leading the way in that. But now the serpent has the authority and the serpent goes after the marriage relationship goes after the authority in the marriage and goes after Eve and she gives in. Now, when God, when God comes to the garden to address them and Adam and Eve are hiding, he doesn't go directly to Eve first, does he? He goes to Adam. So that's a little bit of the truth behind our passage. Man ought to not cover his head since he is the image and glory of God. He's the one first created by God meant to rule and reign. God gave him a helper, but man's responsible to, to rule 
the earth in the name of God, and he's got to help her to do that with him. But he's, God's going to come and say, Adam, how'd you do that? How'd you do there? Like he'll come to us. How'd you manage your home? He'll come to the man first. Doesn't mean the woman doesn't manage the home. We both do. She's the helper. But God has gone to man and said, this is what you need to do. Same in the church. A man not, ought not to cover his head since he's the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. She's there to help and honor that work, the man and the woman being a team in that regard. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Woman came from man. Man was there first. God gave him the command first, then he gave a helper later. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. It doesn't mean the woman's created for the man to do whatever he wants with her. We know that's not what it's saying. Again, that's why it's important to go verse by verse through the Scriptures, because we've already seen in chapter 7 that God says that a man's body isn't even his own. It belongs to his wife. So this isn't saying that a woman belongs to man, he can do whatever he wants. No, no. In his leadership, his godly leadership in the home, here in the church, a woman comes to help alongside, and that's how it's to be done. And man's going to answer directly to God for that. Richard Pratt, who's been a big help to me as I've gone through 1 Corinthians, said it this way in terms of a man being the glory of God, a man being the first one that God went to to say, do this. He says it this way, in this sense, therefore, the male descendants of Adam have a more direct responsibility to serve God in the fulfillment of his creation mandate. The special role for males does not diminish in the least the responsibilities of females, They are also made in God's image and render service to Him. Even so, males are in a unique position of being the same gender as the one who first stood before God and served Him. They have the serious responsibility to bring honor to God in all things, but especially in worship. Verse 10, Paul continues, That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Remember when Peter said that Paul's words are very hard to understand? Well, amen, Peter. <laughs> Headship, submission, order, glory, what's happening in Corinth. We want to untangle all that to try to understand it. And then Peter throws angels in for good measure. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Now, there's two thoughts behind this, two general thoughts about what this could mean. The first is that the other word for angels is messenger. Sometimes in the New Testament, the word uh, angelos is speaking of a human messenger. Sometimes it's speaking of a messenger, a spiritual messenger, an angel from God. And context will tell you what's true there. Well, here in the context, it could be both. There were messengers in that time. They didn't have FaceTime. There weren't telephones. People would send messengers to find out what's going on in this place and that place. Sometimes those messengers came with uh, nefarious plans, kind of like spies. I'm going to see what's going on in this assembled group of Christians so I can report back to this other group who's hostile toward them. Sometimes they were those kinds of messengers. Sometimes they were just messengers who would go and observe what's happening in the churches and come back and report back to Paul. So if that's the case, 
A wife ought to have a symbol of authority over her head because as we'll see in verse 16, the churches of God all follow this order. So those in Corinth, if you're doing something different and the wives are acting independently and not honoring their husbands, there's going to be messengers that bring that back to me. That's one thought. The other thought being angels, the spiritual beings, are ones who are constantly worshiping the Lord in heaven, aren't they? We see that in Isaiah 6, where the angels are covering their faces, saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And then there's this corporate gathering in Revelation 5, where angels are praising the Lord. So angels are regularly in the presence of God, praising God, and then serving His purposes on the earth. So angels are very familiar with corporate worship. So this could be Paul saying, a wife ought to have a symbol of authority over her head, because that's the way God has designed it, this order in the church. The angels are watching. They themselves know what's appropriate in corporate worship before God. I think it's that interpretation. You can take your pick. It's not a matter of salvation there, but I think it's that. So why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Either way, whichever one you pick, people or beings are watching. People are paying attention, and God wants there to be a certain order in male-female roles in the church. Verse 11, nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. Now, that would have been different to the culture of Corinth. Again, you could have Joe Corinthian, all right, pagan, Greek guy, Greek Joe from Corinth, worships in idols' temples, trusts in the idols, then hears the gospel and is converted and no longer worships (coughs) false gods, now worships the one true and living God. But still, Joe is used to kind of being independent and available and free, and we know that there were questions about sexual immorality, what's right, what's wrong in the church, see chapter 6. So Joe, this Corinthian new Christian, still needs to be taught, listen, you're not on an island, Joe, you've got a wife. You are not independent from your wife. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. Remember earlier, Paul argued, listen, God has gone to the man first and said, rule and reign, and then from him came a helper. Well, listen, guys, you also come from a woman. You're also connected to women in your life. You're not independent here. So right here, this is Paul guarding against the independent man who uses the woman and does whatever he wants. That's not appropriate. We belong to one another. Woman to the man, man to the woman. Again, our bodies For sexual relationships, chapter 7, belong to one another. Woman to the man, man to the woman. That's been clear in this book. And then he says, all things are from God. Adam came from God. And earlier he said that Eve came from Adam, and that's true, but Eve also came from God. God is the one that brought Eve to life from Adam. So a woman has a relationship directly to God just like a man does. All things are from God. Women have their life from God. Men have their life from God. 
So again, second point here, gender roles in corporate worship honor our heads in authority. Women are, in this case, in this church, some of them were not giving honor to their husbands, and that is backwards according to the Lord. Just by way of example, um, in terms of honoring the leadership over us, um, Josh, who so faithfully leads us in music week in, week out, uh, if he were up here and, you know, this morning we went um, from song to song, and if all of a sudden he starts playing a new song and you start thinking, that's Led Zeppelin, <laughs> and he kind of does his own thing, you know, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to play something I feel like playing, okay? Enough of this order of service and what the pastors have kind of, you know, I'm going to do, starts playing Led Zeppelin. That would not only embarrass him and Dee Dee, um, <laughs> that wouldn't just bring shame on him. It would also dishonor the elders of the church, wouldn't it? This is something that you are doing that's outside of what we've asked you to do. We've asked you to worship the Lord and lead us in this way. And he does that so faithfully, doesn't he? We've asked you to do that in this way. For you to kind of go do your own thing doesn't just cause people to look at you. It causes people to look at us. It's, it's a dishonoring of those who are over you. So you parents have had the experience when your child acts up in public and the eyes go to you. <laughs> Not just the kid, you know. I mean, you kind of want to go, I don't know. <laughs> we understand being out of line and dishonoring those who are supposed to be leading us. That's what's happening here. Richard Pratt, I told you, I, I read a quote from him earlier. He talks about a time where he was a guest preacher at a church, and he stood up and kind of just made an offhand comment before the sermon, talked about the need for us to honor one another, men and women to honor one another, um, in the home and worship, showing honor. And he said, a wife stood up in the middle of the service and started criticizing her husband publicly. She didn't like what Pratt said, and so she stood up and let it be known. And Pratt said, the man sat down, put his hand over his head, and he said he never picked up his head the rest of the service. There may be issues with that guy. That's not the place. That's not the way to do it. You might not, he might not have anything to, to really, any reason for honor in the way he's been acting, but God has placed him in a position to where you can at least honor God, the one who's placed him over you. Pratt says, less extreme examples of such dishonor take place in worship all the time. A husband elbows his wife as the preacher says something that touches on an argument they had earlier in the week. That's not honorable. A parent threatens a child with severe punishment in front of the congregation. Severe punishment. Put simply, we do not seem to realize that worship is a time to honor one another. We come to worship Christ. We should care less about what, a, but we could care less about the others who join us in worship. Sometimes that's true. Sometimes in this building, in this room, there is gossip about one another. There is slander about one another. It's not the way it's to be. The church of God honors one another when we come together. There might not be much honorable in you and I on any given week, but we are children of the King. We are saved by Him, loved by Him, 
And in that sense, we matter. And He's sanctifying us. This isn't a place to dishonor one another. Pratt continues, but the fact is that we cannot honor Christ in worship while we dishonor our fellow worshipers. Cannot honor Christ in worship while we dishonor our fellow worshipers. We cannot honor Christ in worship while we dishonor our fellow worshipers. There's a third reason gender roles are good and appropriate. Gender roles in corporate worship resonate with nature. Gender roles in corporate worship resonate with nature. Nature points to the difference between men and women. And Paul's going to highlight that. Verse 13, judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? We know his answer. He wants them to admit, no, it's not. Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it's a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it's for her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. He's saying, just look at nature. Generally speaking, who has the longer hair? That's what Paul's doing, okay? Generally speaking, I know there are cases here and there where that's not true. Generally speaking, just look at nature. Women have the long hair, men have the short hair. In that culture, first century, men had the short hair, women had the long hair, as in most cultures, not all. But he's simply pointing to the way nature normally works in a culture. This is not saying that it's sinful for a man to have long hair. It's saying culturally at that time, that was just kind of understood. There were men in the Bible who took the Nazarite vow and they would not cut their hair. And evidently, Paul didn't have a problem with that. Paul didn't somewhere in his letters say, oh, by the way, let's pick on Samson for a moment too. He's not criticizing that. He is criticizing when men start to behave like women and women start to behave like men. He is trying to say that these genders are different. They have different roles, different distinctions. That's his point here. Look at nature. They're different. Men and women are different. That's what he's saying. The issue, again, is a leadership and submission issue. Now, if it was just about hair, you could say that if you're a woman, if my hair is a certain length, then I'm honoring God. Well, we know that that's not how God prizes righteousness. He looks at the heart, doesn't he? Not the outside. Or a man saying, oh, I've got the old buzz cut. I'm really pleasing to God. It's not about that. It's, so he, yes, is maintaining gender distinctions. Look at nature. Look what nature shows us. But again, his issue, as the issue was with Jesus, is always the heart. There are men with short hair who fail to exercise authority and abuse their authority. God doesn't say, well, hey, they're doing good. At least they got a flat top. <laughs> are you embracing your role and leading in the way God would have you? There are women with long hair who do not honor the authority over them. And they don't get to say, well, I've got long hair. I'm doing it right. No, no, no. The hair is pointing to something here in Corinth. That's what the issue was. And Paul's calling the church to look at nature, to see God has made men and women different. Verse 16, if anyone's inclined to be contentious, so he gets done with his sermon, and it's as if he's saying, 
there may be some who are still kicking against this truth. If anyone's inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice. We don't do what you are trying to do in the church. We don't contend with God over this, nor do the churches of God. It's as Paul saying, travel around to the other Christian communities. They don't contend with God on this matter. They have those roles. They don't go against what God has said and therefore go against the rest of the churches. So it's really a rebuke, not to the church at Corinth, but to some in the church at Corinth who are trying to tear down those gender roles in the church. Today, it's, it's not uncommon to maybe search a church website or to find out about a church and to see, you know, pastors Bill and Kelly. Not Pastor Bill and his wife, Kelly. I prayed for Pastor Jeff and Sarah earlier. Pastor Jeff, period, comma, and his wife, Sarah. Not Pastors Jeff, not Pastor Jeff and Pastor Sarah. That's not what we're doing. But today, you have that a lot. You have Pastor Bill and Pastor Kelly, the husband and wife pastor team. You look at verse 16, and when you recognize what was happening in Corinth, there were some who were contentious toward biblical gender roles in the corporate church, and they were doing something that was different than the other churches around them. Well, today, when you have female pastors, it is different than the churches around them, and it's different than church history, and it's different than what Paul said here to the Corinthian church. And evidently, it wasn't just that the Corinthian churches needed to to hold on to these biblical gender roles. He expected that all churches are doing this. It's rather arrogant to say that 2,000 years later in the West, we've got a better way. We don't get to do that. We follow what His way is. And Paul makes it a point. You can look at nature and see differences in how the genders relate to one another, and you should be able to look at the other churches and see that as well. Gender roles in corporate worship resonate with nature. We are made differently. Now, the unbelieving world, (coughs) in their desire to do away with gender distinctions is fighting against the natural order. The natural order is that there are men and women with different roles, different responsibilities. And the natural order, when functioning rightly, is to be beautiful, is to glorify God. You think of a situation, a real-life situation a number of years back, feminist professor Rosario Butterfield, lesbian professor trying to tear down Christianity's influence as much as she could to her students, was invited to a pastor's home for dinner. And she expected to see all of the things that she had been taught were true of a Christian's home. Patriarchalism, male chauvinism, She saw in this pastor and his wife a beautiful working together, a beautiful picture of love, of leadership, of generosity, of grace. That eventually caused her to listen to the gospel, and she was one to Christ. She saw biblical gender roles in the home and was drawn to that. Friends, 
it's very easy for us to look at churches that have women pastors or look at society tear down gender roles and distinctions and to shake our heads and go, oh, they're dumb. Are we displaying the beauty of leadership, the beauty of honor, the beauty of helpers helping one another to rule and to reign and to bring blessing to this earth? Are we displaying that? We've got to look at ourselves first. And hopefully we can show off the beauty of our God's ways. Because our God's ways are good, aren't they? They are for good. So gender roles in corporate worship reflect divine order. Gender roles in corporate worship honor our heads. Gender roles in corporate worship resonate with nature. And I told you I've got a few points of implication. I just gave you one. <laughs> Let's make sure we're showing these gender roles to be good by by living in them according to how God's called us to. If you're here and you're not a Christian, what a Sunday for you to come. <laughs> I'm glad you're here. I hope you're getting a little bit of a window into what the Bible teaches about gender rules. If you have any questions further, um, I promise you I'm a friendly guy. <laughs> um, you can ask Christians around you. You can ask any of the elders. They're listed in your worship guide. We'd love just to make some things clear if there's something you're fuzzy about or maybe uh, answer some of your questions, hear your concerns. Uh, just, I'd invite you to come and talk to us afterwards or send us an email, set up an appointment. We want you to be helped in this, understanding what the Bible teaches. We embrace that the Bible teaches what it teaches, again, for our good. Not to keep people down, but to bring an environment of leadership and blessing and love. There's another reason, though, that we embrace teaching like this, a certain ordering of the home, a certain ordering of the church. And that is because we know who's behind the teaching. We know whose teaching it is. God created a world that was good and called man to rule and reign it and then gave him a helper that he loved and was meant to protect and cherish. And they would together work and rule the creation. Very quickly, those two did their own thing, rebelled against God. And men and women have been doing that ever since. We all come from that husband and wife. And God determined that he would reconcile himself to those who'd rebelled against him. He didn't owe us reconciliation. And the reason he gave it is because God by nature is merciful. So God sent his son to live a perfect life so that he could give that. Once he'd lived it, he can now give it to those who'd rebelled against God. So there's this great exchange that God allowed to happen. He sent his son to live perfectly, and his son took the sins of those who would believe in him, and there was this great exchange that happened. And God the Father says to sinners, you and me, I will forgive you, I will change you, I will live with you forever and you will be mine because of what my son did on your behalf. So when we think of God, we don't think of harsh ruler who's telling us to do things that aren't for our good. I hope you see that we think of God and we think life giver, merciful, loving, compassionate. And that's why we can trust him when he tells us how to order homes and order our church.
we trust Him because we know Him. And so I'd encourage you, you might not like this or that about biblical gender roles, but I would invite you to maybe read the Bible with someone and see what the Bible says about the God who authored it. I think if you read it honestly, read it honestly, take it for what it says, you will find an amazingly gracious God who is for your good. So I'd invite you to that. Christians, Christian men, lead where God has called you. Lead your family. Lead in the church where God has called you. And lead in a way that allows those under your care to thrive and to flourish. We have all blown it, haven't we, men? We've all made a mess of it in some way. Your God is forgiving, and your God sanctifies, and your God teaches. You know how I know that? Because he gave us this text today. (laughs) He's continuing to teach us, to instruct us. Women, honor your husbands and the leaders God has given you in your life. Men, honor the leaders God has put in your life as well. Honor those in leadership over us. Jesus honored human leaders who were horrible people. He gave them a certain honor because of the office they had. Did not condone their sin in any way, but he gave them a certain honor. Honor those who God has placed you under. Sometimes we fail to fulfill our roles because the people God has connected us to. I can't honor my husband because he. I can't lead my wife well because she. I would ask you for a moment just to get in front of the mirror, no one else around, say, God, how do I honor you in my leadership while loving her? How do I obey you and honor her? Not not how do I use her shortcomings to say that I don't need to honor you, but how do I honor you and nourish and cherish and love her with where she's at? And women, same thing. God, I can't obey you because he. That is not a biblical thought. God, I need your strength. I want to love and honor my husband in the way I'm called to. And there are challenges to that, but would you help me honor you? So let's think of our own roles and ask God for the strength to fulfill them. Church, corporately, honoring others as a part of corporate worship. Consider how you honor one another in this regular gathering from the moment you enter the parking lot to the moment you leave. Are you honoring, are you building up, or are you tearing down? Are you criticizing, complaining, or are you seeking to build up and pray and honor? Again, this is a Holy Spirit-inspired principle in the New Testament, constantly trying to outdo one another in love, outdo one another in showing honor, Romans chapter 12. Finally, I said this earlier, I think it's incumbent upon all of us who know our God, who've been changed by our God, who've been forgiven by our God, who've been given new life by our God to demonstrate the beauty of his design. So all of us on a Sunday like this can take tomorrow, tonight, whatever it may be, and say, God, how can I demonstrate the beauty of your design. 
Not how can I point the finger and say, yeah, you need to do that better. Uh, you need to do that better. You guys need to do that better. Ma'am, you need... God, how can I demonstrate the beauty of the way that you've ordered roles for me and for others? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your wisdom. None of us can counsel you. None of us can correct you. You know what you're doing. And so we pray that you would strengthen us to demonstrate how you wanted Adam to rule, how you wanted Eve to help, how you want pastors and members of churches to relate to one another for the greater good of the mission of Jesus Christ. Give us wisdom in how to do all that. May we lead and honor and follow and trust in a way that brings you glory and points to the goodness of your rule. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.